Ephesians chapter 3 is where we are today. Uh, This past week, we had Groundhog Day on Thursday, which means that your pastor came out of his office, saw his shadow, and declared that there will be six more weeks of this Ephesians study. Uh, at least, probably double that, double that, uh, and that's okay because this is a powerful book that we are reading here. It's just getting richer and richer and deeper and deeper, and today we're going to look at a, a very powerful concept. It's the concept of history. We're going to look at God's view of history today. How many of you enjoy history? You like reading history, watching documentaries on history, that sort of thing. I think it's biblical to be a student of history Because God is the author of this world. He's not only the source, the origin of the universe. He is that which ordains the continuity of events. And as we study those events, there are various ways that we can interpret them. There are various views of history. Some historians say that history is cyclical, that there is a pattern of cycles, that kingdoms come along and they rise because of certain uh, moral systems or rules, and then they deteriorate inevitably from within, and another kingdom comes along, knocks them out of the way, and now they're the top dog, and then they eventually deteriorate, and another kingdom comes along, and it's cyclical. It's a pattern of cycles. Other people say, like, uh, like for example, Karl Marx, He says history has a synthesis that is coming. You've got classes. You've got the lower class and the upper class, and they're struggling. But one day the lower class is going to unite with all the laborers of the world. Workers of the world unite, Mark said, and there will be a synthesis, and the lower class, upper class will no longer struggle because they will live together in this perfect community. This is where communism comes from. It's the Marxist dialectic. And then there's the Western view of history. And in the West, historians say we're just getting better every day in every way. We're moving forward. We're making progress. Excelsior, onward and upward, and everything is improving. Bible disagrees with that. Bible seems to say everything is wearing down. Everything is getting worse. You got that vision in Daniel from Nebuchadnezzar of the metal man representing all the kingdoms yet to come. And each one is of a lesser quality. You get from gold all the way down to iron mixed with clay. No, we're not getting better. And yet, and yet people try to adopt that. They try to incorporate that into theology. And it, that's called dominionism. And that's not biblical. And then you've got the New Age view of history, the Darwinian view. We're evolving as a species. Right now we're, we're, uh, we're homo sapiens. We're going to become homo noeticus. We're going to have this higher level. We're going to achieve awareness. And we'll, we'll, we'll shake off all the, the uh, absolutes that we've created for ourselves, the moral absolutes and the notion of religion and of God. And we'll just kind of break loose of all that and we'll have this amalgamation of pantheism and relativism and everything will be enlightened, all will be well and right. And so there's lots of views among secular man about history. And today in your notes, we're going to look at the fact that the secular world and the Bible have differing views on history. Let me show you a passage in Scripture. Luke 3, verse 1 and 2. This kind of lays out how God sees history. This gives you a perspective right here. Look at what it says. It says, now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's the Roman emperor at the time, when Pontius Pilate, you know him, was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip 
was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. That's in West Texas. Uh, in the, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, those guys were the high priests in Jerusalem back in Jesus' day. So you got this litany of, of, of important political names. Now get this. It says the word of God came to John. Who? Son of Zechariah. Where? In the wilderness. He's not in some palace. He's not in some court. He's not sitting on some throne. You've got this lineup of all these people that the world, the secular world would find significant. And who is God preoccupied with? None of them. They merely serve as a backdrop for this seemingly insignificant man that God sees as valuable because he will proclaim that Christ is the Messiah, and that is how God rolls. That is his view. Secular history focuses on people that it deems important because of positions. God focuses on saints. Secular history focuses on battles between nations. God focuses on the ultimate battle that happened at Calvary. Secular history focuses on the claiming of territories and geography and uh, the mapping out of various nations and borders. God focuses on the claiming of souls. And this is the difference. And today we're going to look at the essential text on history, the biblical view. Ephesians 3, we're going to go for about 13 verses today. And there is a focus in this text, and it's a focus on a people that never existed before the New Testament that never even appeared in Scripture until right here. And I'll give you a clue as to their identity. A lot of them are sitting in this room right now. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon our time and your word. May it be rich. May it be fulfilling. May it show us something, God, that, that fuels our understanding of who you say we are. And we pray that it will have a, an impact on us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's dive into verse one. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now I'm gonna stop right there. Paul says he's a prisoner. What's he talking about? He's not being metaphorical. He actually is a prisoner at this writing. Where is he? He's in Rome in a jail cell. How'd he get there? Let me give you the background of that. It takes us to the, the, the end of the book of Acts, very important chunk of that book. Paul is in Jerusalem. He is on the temple grounds with an Ephesian, with a, a Gentile by the name of Trophimus. The Jews see him with Trophimus. What they know about Paul is this guy's crazy about the Gentiles for some reason. He's written this book, a letter to the Romans, and he talks about the Gentiles, and they assume that Paul's up to something, and they say, you know what? Either he is planning on taking this Gentile past that barrier that we built to keep those guys out of the temple, or he's already done it. And so an angry mob forms. They surround Paul. They're about to beat him to death when a Roman centurion grabs him, pulls him out of that melee, and drags him to the top of a flight of stairs to take him to some confines to keep him safe from these Jews. Paul gets to the top of those stairs. He turns around. He sees this angry mob of Jews. And he has a thought. What a wonderful place to preach. <laughs> and he says to the centurion, hey, buddy, can I just say a few words? And he proceeds to give his testimony to this angry mob. He says, I was a Jew. I was like you. 
I have all the credentials. I've kept the law. I studied with so-and-so and so-and-so. I did all the stuff. I know all the, the things. Uh, I, I, I persecuted uh, Christians. And they're tracking with him. They're listening. Okay, They're paying attention to what he says. And he says, and here's what happened. I was on the road to Damascus. I was going to kill more Christians. God got a hold of me, blinded me, instructed me to go into Damascus, find a guy named Ananias who told me about Jesus. I received the gospel. God saved me, transformed me, redeemed me. And then God said to me, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And when Paul says that word Gentiles in Acts twenty two twenty two, it reads, up to this word, they listened to him. He uttered the G word and they lost it. And the people responded. They said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live, which is how you know your message did not get through. And so they want to kill him. The Romans whisk him into incarceration for safekeeping. Later they find out there's about 40 Jews that have taken a vow of hunger. They're not going to eat until Paul is dead. And so the Romans say, we got, we got to move him. We got to take him out of Jerusalem. They're going to get to him. They're going to kill him. And so they whisk him away under cover of night to a place called Caesarea. It's this little city by the sea. There's a judge there. They're going to take Paul before this judge, a guy named Felix, and hopefully Felix will just dismiss the case and he'll be, he'll be away from the lion's den there in Jerusalem. Well, Felix is a corrupt judge. He does not dismiss the case. He's waiting for Paul to bribe him. Paul's not going to do that. And so Felix just sits on it and Paul rots away in a prison cell in Caesarea two years. At that point, Felix steps down. New guy comes in by the name of Festus. Not the guy from Gunsmoke, but different guy. My people. Anyway, Festus comes in. He is sympathetic to the Jews. And so he's inclined to have Paul sent back to Jerusalem to stand a proper religious trial. That's exactly what the Jews want. Paul knows that happens. I'm a dead man. So he does the only thing that he can. He says, I appeal to Caesar. So if you are a Roman citizen, and Paul was, you could appeal to Caesar if you're to stand trial. And they, they send you then to Rome. And so Festus says to Caesar, you will go. And so Paul is slated to sail to Rome as a prisoner to stand trial in Rome because he's a Roman citizen. Before he does, Herod Agrippa, who is the king of Judea, he's in town, he's heard about Paul, he tells Festus, I'd like to hear this guy. Festus says, okay. So Paul has an audience with Herod and he once again gives his testimony, preaches the gospel to Herod. After that, he boards the ship. He's with a bunch of prisoners. They sail toward Rome. They're on their way to Italy. Along the way, a bunch of events happen. There's a shipwreck. They end up on an island called Malta. Paul gets bit by a snake. There's a whole thing. They eventually get to Rome. Paul stands or sits in a jail cell waiting for his accusers to arrive so they can have a trial. His accusers never come. Two more years. So all told, it's like five years since his arrest. And so when Paul says, I am a prisoner, he's speaking literally. When he says, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, he's speaking literally because it was... It was his presence uh, with this guy named Trophimus, this Gentile, that got him arrested in the first place. But notice there is a phrase in between the word prisoner and the phrase on behalf of you Gentiles. Who is he a prisoner of? He says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. 
And here we have a glimpse into Paul's perspective, and it happens to align with God's perspective, you see, on history. From man's viewpoint, it is the Jews who got Paul arrested because they were trying to kill him. It is the Romans who move him from place to place and eventually send him to Rome and lock him up there, but who's in charge the whole time? God is in charge the whole time. And this is the right perspective on history. Number one, in your notes, all history is under God's authority. No matter what man thinks, no matter what man says, God's in control. Paul sees himself as a prisoner, not of Rome, not of Israel, but of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. If you belong to Jesus, that's how you should see yourself, as a prisoner. 1 Corinthians says we are bondservants of Christ. And the word for bondservant is the Greek word doulos, which means literally slave. You're a slave of Christ. Now, that's a charged term uh, today because of the history in America, all right? But the connotation, what does that mean to say I'm a slave of Christ? Is that to imply that Christianity is, is, is like unto the bondage that we had here back in the 1800s in America? No, it's not like that at all. Uh, th- this is not oppression. This is not hard labor. This is not mistreatment. It's to say that Jesus is Lord. It's to say that Jesus is our master. He is in control of us and everything in our lives. We are his property and he cares for us and he, 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 he is sovereign over every element of your life. He's far above all human authorities. He's not like any human master. And so Paul has this perspective and because he has this perspective, he's not frustrated. He's not ticked off that he's in, imprisoned for five years. Can you imagine your perspective? Five years in the clink? How would I be like that? I'd be, I'm naturally a complainer. I'd be like, this isn't fair. Well, no, I don't deserve to be here. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, I can't serve God because I'm, 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 I'm here. Paul didn't have that perspective. Paul, Paul continued to serve God. What does he do at every turn? He witnesses he witnesses to this angry mob that just tried to kill him. He witnesses to Festus, to Felix, to Herod. What do you think he's going to do when he gets in front of Caesar? He wants to witness to Caesar. I guarantee you he's led several Roman centurions to Christ by this point. Several jail keepers have come to faith by this point. And so he's got the right perspective because he believes the words that God led him to write already in Romans 8. All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that today? God is in control. There are things that happen to us, awful things. Some of you guys are going through some straight mess right now. You're going through some difficult circumstances. God is in control. That does not mean that God caused those horrible things to happen to you, all right? But despite those horrible things, which are a reality of the fallen world in which we live, God is still on the throne. And here's the deal. Despite those awful circumstances, he can accomplish his purpose. Sometimes in conjunction with awful circumstances, he can accomplish his purpose. You ever read the the story of Joseph? He was a righteous young man. He was just being obedient to God. His brothers hated his guts. They sold him into slavery. They they thought he he would end up dead. They didn't have a problem with that. He ended up in in Egypt in prison for years, lost years of his life. 
And yet through all that hardship, he never complained. He had the right perspective, as does Paul right here. And through this man and his suffering, God accomplished his purpose to help fulfill his covenant to Joseph's ancestors. This is the story and the lesson of Scripture. And so we need to have that perspective right there as we go into verse 2. Take a look. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Uh, which is number two in your notes, history has a divine structure, a divine structure. We operate within the timing of God. Uh, Underline that word stewardship in verse two. You may have another version. Perhaps the word is different. Perhaps it's administration. Underline that word. Uh, You may remember a few weeks back when we started this study in, in, in chapter one, We looked at verse 3 to 14, and I told you that in the original Greek, that is the longest sentence in the Bible. It's one long sentence. In English, in about verse 10, you've got this word plan, and I I think I had you underline the word plan. Well, that word plan in chapter 1 and this word, stewardship or administration, in the Greek, same word. Oikonomia. Oikonomia. Sounds like our word economy. That's where we get economy. And so what we're talking about here is a special economy of time. All right? It is a unique period of time that takes place. Elsewhere, this word is translated as age. If you've got an old King James Version Bible, you've got a word there, dispensation. You don't hear that word very often anymore. Have you ever heard of a special dispensation? Back during the pandemic, the IRS, in light of... COVID-19, they said, you know, you can file, we'll go ahead and set a later date. You don't have to file your taxes by April 15th or whatever it was. You could file them a couple months later or whatever that situation was, okay? So we had a special dispensation to file taxes late. You try to pull that same excuse today and file late, they'll, they'll come down on you. They'll say, what gives? And you're like, well, back in you know, 2020. And they're like, oh, no, 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 that was 2020. No, that was, that was a special dispensation, That's not the rule going forward. That was an age, right? That was a period of time that's come to an end. Now we're doing it this way. So throughout scripture, we see that unfold. There are various ages of history. And in each of these ages, God governs man in a unique way. And the the method of that governance changes from age to age. Now here's what does not change. God does not change. Man does not really change. Salvation never changes. It's always through faith in what God has said. But the way that God governs man changes from age to age. So in the beginning, God created Adam. He created Adam in perfection. Adam was innocent, sinless. And so God said, I'm going to govern you according to your perfection, your innocence. Well, Adam is made in the image of God, and therefore he's got a will. He disobeys God. He makes that decision to disobey God. He sins. He's not perfect anymore. He's not innocent anymore, so he can't be governed according to innocence. So we got a new age now. What does Adam have? He doesn't have innocence, but he's got the knowledge of good and evil. He's got a conscience. He's got an innate moral sense. He he has encountered right and wrong. He knows the difference now. So God says, I'm going to govern you according to your conscience, to that innate morality that you now have. But the descendants of Adam, it doesn't work out so well. Cain knows right and wrong, but he kills his brother anyway. Over the years, the earth becomes filled with violence. And by Genesis 6, God says, 
uh, my spirit shall not strive with man. And he floods the earth. He destroys the earth. Starts all over with, with Noah and his family. You got a new age. As the earth begins to, to, to have more human beings on it, as they begin to populate, he says, I'm, I'm not going to govern you. You're going to govern you. Your man will govern man. So you need to scatter. You need to fill the earth and establish government on the earth. They don't want to scatter. They say, well, I don't want to go anywhere. Let's stay right here. Let's, let's build a tower. Let's build a tower. We'll be, we'll be greater than God. Sounds like Lucifer. And so God says, no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to scatter? I will scatter you. And he confuses their languages. And they naturally scatter because he has divided them up by, by form of communication into various people groups. They become different nations. And they naturally scatter and out of all those nations he takes one guy and he says from you Abram I'm going to make a great nation and I will govern that nation I'm not going to govern all these other nations I will govern my chosen people and I'm going to make a promise to them and you will obey me and the nations of the world will learn from your example and that was Abraham and all of his descendants and within that promise, he says, here's what I'm going to do for you. And uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to have all these unconditional uh, things that I'm going to give you. All I'm asking of you is that you believe in my promise. You stay in the land where I put you and you worship me alone. You don't worship as the other nations worship, all these pagan gods. How'd that work out? Not so hot. Abraham's descendants, they, they don't stay in the land. They go down to Egypt. What's down in Egypt? Idols. They worship idols. God says, huh, you like Egypt? Why don't you stay there a while? And he allows them to go into bondage in Egypt for centuries. Eventually, God raises up a guy named Moses. And he tells the descendants of Abraham, he says, you know, you have trouble doing what I say. I think I'm going to write it down for you. And he gives Moses the law. And so from Mount Sinai, Moses comes with these tablets, these, these uh, tablets of the law. And so the requirement on the people is to obey the law. He's going to govern them according to his law. Obey my law. Listen to my prophets. How'd that work out? Not so hot. They disobeyed the law. They distorted the law. They tried to make it into a means of salvation, which it was never intended to be. As for the prophets, they killed them one by one all the way up to the greatest prophet ever, Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. And so at the end of that age, God says, all right, I will give you what you want, which is a temporary blindness. You cannot embrace my Messiah as a people. There are individual Jews today that come to faith in Jesus, but collectively you do not see that kind of revival in Israel toward the Messiah. And so now we have a new age, and in that age, God is opening up that plan to outsiders, not the descendants of Abraham. And this is the stewardship, this is the age that Paul is highlighting here. He's saying we're entering into a new age. It's an age, incidentally, that we're still in today. It's an age of grace. And Paul understands that his job in this age in this dispensation is to be a special apostle to the Gentiles. He's taking that role very seriously. And he would be the prominent figure. Others would come and take the gospel to Gentiles as well. But Paul is kind of the big figure in that age. And he tells these Gentiles, he says in verse 3, that you've heard of this, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. All right? It's made known by Revelation. If you're with us on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the Bible. 
what it is, how it came to us. And we've talked about how in its totality, the Bible is the revelation of God. And that means man didn't come up with it. Man didn't write it. God revealed it. Paul says this thing, this mystery that I'm about to unpack here, I, I, I didn't conjure this up. This is not a theory. This came to me. God revealed it to me. And in verse four, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now you've noticed that word mystery twice. In the last two verses, you've seen that word mystery. Pro tip, when you're reading the Bible and you wanna know what is the major theme of this passage, good rule of thumb, look for words that repeat. All right, look for words that repeat because that's gonna be a clue as to what the theme of that passage is. So here you've got this word mystery. It's not gonna be the last time you see it. He's gonna bring that word up again and again. And so this incorporates into the theme of this passage right here. And it tells us another point about the view of God concerning history. And this is number three in your notes. In light of this mystery, we know that God obscures or reveals things throughout history. How many of you like mysteries? You, you, maybe you read mystery novels, you enjoy a mystery film. I do, I enjoy that because I like to figure things out. I like to piece a puzzle together. This is not that kind of mystery. We're not talking about Agatha Christie here. This is not Sherlock Holmes. You're not, it's not a whodunit. The word used here is mysterion in the Greek and what that refers to is it refers to something that is a truth that is hitherto hidden from humanity. There is no awareness of it. Not only is there not an understanding of it, you're not even aware of it. Like, it's not that you don't have this figured out yet. You're not even aware it exists, that it's even a thing until God reveals it. A mysterion is something that no one knows about until God says, Ta-da! And so we've got this mystery. And Paul is claiming that this mystery, which he's about to reveal, was given to him by revelation. And it was this mystery in verse 5. He says, which was made known, uh, excuse me, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so it appears that Paul is not the only recipient of this mystery, you've got other apostles. Peter, for example, and company. God's revealed it to them. But in ages past, they didn't know. They'd never heard of it. So what that means is in the Old Testament, this concept that he's about to reveal to these guys, nobody had ever heard a word about it. Not any prophet of the Old Testament era. Not Jeremiah, not Isaiah, not Ezekiel, not Daniel, not Samuel. None of those heavy hitters of the OT knew anything about this. They just weren't privy. It was tip-top secret. I saw a chart one time called the Mountain Peaks of Prophecy. And on this chart, there was a depiction of an Old Testament prophet. He's got a scroll in one hand. He's kind of looking out over the horizon. And his line of sight is perfectly in line with the tops of these mountain peaks 
that would ascend. And he could only see the mountain peaks. And each mountain peak represented something. This first mountain peak uh, was a future event. It was the birth of Christ. The next mountain peak was the crucifixion of Jesus. The fourth mountain, or the third mountain peak was uh, the coming of a future uh, prince, the Antichrist. And then you got another mountain peak, and that would be like the coming kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And there's the rebuilding of a temple. And so the Old Testament prophets could see all those mountain peaks you know what they couldn't see they couldn't see the valleys in between there was something down in those valleys and there's a particularly large significant important valley that they can't see into and what is down there it's this mystery that Paul's talking about and Paul says now it's been revealed and God waited to reveal it until after Christ had been crucified until after Christ had been raised, until after Christ had ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Now it's been revealed. So what is it? He's gonna unleash it right now. You ready? Everybody lean forward. Verse six, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. Now, what do you call that body that contains both Jew and Gentile who are equally partaking in the promise, in Christ? What do you call that? You call that the church. That's right. And so in your notes number four, God's view of history is that the mysterious centerpiece of human history is the church. The church is central in God's view of human history. This is the theme of this whole book, the book of Ephesians. It's, the, it's all about the mystery of the church and the reality of the church. Our series is called A New People. It's a people that's never existed before. This is so revolutionary, this would have blown the minds of those Old Testament prophets. It, it blows the minds of the New Testament guys to whom it is revealed. And it was all planned by God, never before uttered. It was that important. God just kept it to himself. And and what that means is that you can go back in the Old Testament, you will not find anything pertaining to the church in the Old Testament. There's nothing in there. That's that's what makes it a mystery. If, If the Old Testament prophesied about the church, it would not be a mystery because it would have been mentioned. And the word mysterion, it does not refer to something that has been mentioned that we got to figure out. It's never even been divulged in any sense. And so that's why some of my dear, dear friends who are of a more reformed persuasion, I love them dearly. They're allies in many ways. I think they're wrong about this. They go back into the Old Testament and they look for stuff and they look for symbols and they say, see that right there? That's the church. When it's talking about Israel, that's the church. The church is the redeemed of all time. No, no, they're not. Israel is not the church. Israel is an altogether different people. They are a covenant people of God. They are the people to whom God made a promise through Abraham that through them would come the Messiah. And there are other details of that promise that have nothing to do with you and I as members of the church. God will keep every part of his promise to Israel. The elements of that promise do not transfer over to you and I. We, we get in on the fact that through them came a Messiah and all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. That is the extent 
of our benefit. It's like a residual benefit. We are under the new covenant. We're not under the Abrahamic covenant. And so Israel is a different people. God loves Israel. He's not done with Israel. Christ is Israel's Messiah. All right. God loves the church. He's got big plans for the church. Christ is the church's groom. We are the bride of Christ. Two distinct, unique peoples that come under different covenant, covenants. If you are Jewish by birth, by your DNA, and you trust in Jesus Christ, you're part of the church. Okay? But all the Jews of the Old Testament era, they are not a part of the church. They are part of Israel. And they will be resurrected because they are declared righteous. There are Jews alive today that have not received the Messiah. And one day there will be an opportunity. There will be an awakening among the Jewish people. And they will turn and they will embrace their Messiah. And they will be counted among the righteous Jews of the Old Testament age. But we are distinct peoples. And the church is unique. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. We're not talking about the Baptist Church. We're not talking about the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church. We're talking about all who have trusted in Jesus Christ and you're relying on his finished work on the cross and his resurrection for your eternity. If that describes you, you are in his beautiful, glorious church. Amen. Amen. And this word, uh, the word church is not seen in this verse, but it describes the church. Uh, And the word is ecclesia. That's what that's what the word church comes from, ecclesia in the Greek. Ek means out of. Uh, kaleo means to call, ecclesia. We are the called out ones. We have th- those who have been called out. Called out of what? Called out of sin. Called out of rebellion. Called out of darkness. Into the light of God. And the first time you see that word is not on the lips of Paul. It's on the lips of Jesus. Matthew 16. Jesus is there with the disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. I've been there, it's in Israel, it's beautiful. When you visit Caesarea Philippi, the first thing that you see is a big cave, massive cave, cleft into the rock of the cliffside there. And back up in that cave is a, is a big old water pit. It's, it's a watery hole, all right? And what you learn when you visit Caesarea Philippi is that in front of that cave, there once stood a temple. And it was a temple dedicated to the god of the underworld by the name of Pan. And and the legend goes that they would sacrifice living human beings to this god. They would drag them to the back of that temple, into that cave. They would throw them into this watery pit and they would drown them as a sacrifice to Pan. And they called that cave, they called it the gates of hell. The gates of hell. That's what they called it. So when you go there, you, you see that that's, that's the name for that place. It is here on this site. Jesus is with the disciples. And you read in Matthew 16, he says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples, they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He says, who do you say I am? And here comes Simon Peter, confident as ever. He, he steps up. He goes, I say you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, I just imagine him smiling and putting his hand on Peter's shoulder. And he says, and I say, you are Peter. Now, Peter was not his birth name. You understand? Jesus gave him that name. His name is Simon. It's Jesus that called him Peter. You know what Peter means? It means rock. But it's not a big rock. What kind of rock is it? It's a little bitty, it's like a pebble, Petros. 
It's a little rock, okay? And so he says, you are Petros. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And my Catholic friends go, ah, Peter. Peter is the rock upon which the church is built. He's the first pope. That's what they think. They think Peter was the first pope. That's where they get the the line of papacy. They trace it back to Peter because of the words of Christ right there. Uh, No, 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 because Jesus says you are Petros. What's that mean? Pebble. And then he says, and upon this rock, what's the word he uses the second time he says rock? Petra. That's a big rock. That's a foundational rock type stone this is boulder style stuff right here it's upon this rock he's going to build his church who is that rock is that peter no he's talking about himself jesus christ he's our rock of ages amen and the church is built on jesus christ and because the church is connected to jesus christ he goes on to say and the what the gates of hell i could picture him motioning and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why will the gates of hell not prevail? Because the church is built on Jesus. We are connected to him. And because of that, no one who wants to destroy the church will be successful, especially Satan. And he's tried and tried, and he's gonna continue to try. And uh, Jesus says, you are mine, you are built upon me. And uh, the fact of that is mind-blowing we consider that this church is something that never existed before it was never even spoken of prior to the new testament and what makes it unique is not the mere fact that gentiles are made righteous okay gentiles were made righteous in the old testament absolutely you ever heard of ruth you ever heard of rahab or naaman all gentiles and yet they were they were made righteous why because they adopted the faith of the jewish god They believed in the promise. They believed in the Jewish Messiah. This is not that. This is something altogether different. The church came into being in Acts chapter 2 when what came? The Holy Spirit. And indwelled the hearts of all believers, connecting us together. That had never happened before. There was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Okay, You only had people that believed and were justified and declared righteous. Now it is the Holy Spirit inhabiting you that makes you righteous, that makes you holy, that, that, that changes you, that transforms you. And you are part of the church because of the indwelling spirit of God. First Peter 2.9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out. Ec- Ecclesia, you're the called out ones. You're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been called out, folks. And so in Ephesians 3, Paul goes on in verse 7. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. He says, I was made a minister. Paul didn't seek this out. I don't think anybody should seek this out, this job of being a minister. Okay, this is a calling. This is not something that you pick on career day. <laughs> my, my dad uh, was a pastor, still is. He's in his 70s. He's still pastoring. He told me when I was a young man, son, if there's anything you can do in life and be happy other than this, you better do it. You know? He said, it's, it's something you got to be called, brother, or you're going to be miserable. And it turns out I'm called because I can't imagine anything else. For me, Paul says, I was made a minister. 
Paul would not even be in the running for something like this by human terms. He was the most unlikely candidate for this job, especially to be an apostle to the Gentiles because he made a habit of killing them. And so in verse, uh, the, in point number five on your notes, what we see in God's view of history is that God chooses the unlikely to accomplish great things all throughout history. It's a shepherd boy that takes down Goliath, okay? It, 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 it's a Jew that becomes the high vizier of Egypt and saves the country from a famine. It is the most unlikely that God perpetually uses. In verse eight, Paul says as much, to me, though I am the very least, Of all the saints, this grace was given. This grace was given. I'll say it was given. Paul was on a donkey. God knocked him off of it, about killed him, blinded him. Where was he going? He was going to kill Christians. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't looking to become a a Christian figure. God took him. You know, it's like the best case for divine election I could find right there. He, He was not a seeker. (laughs) <laughs> a seeker. Paul was, Paul was the opposite of a seeker. He was a killer, amen? That's right. And God said, you're my guy. Abraham. God chose Abraham. Go to the land I'm going to send you. And then he makes him the progenitor of a new race, the Israelites, through whom the Messiah would come. Abraham was not a righteous Jew. There was no such thing as a Jew. What was he? He was a polytheistic pagan from Mesopotamia, worshipped a moon god. God took him. This is our God. He uses the the unlikely to accomplish his purpose. Notice, Paul says, I'm the least of the saints. You you sense his humility there? Paul, Paul, the greatest Christian of all time, he's the least. Elsewhere, he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. Power flows from humility. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble. He says, my role, it's grace that is given to me to do what? He says, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says, I'm just here to open the vault to you guys. The unlikely. Just like me. And he says in verse 9, to bring a light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Why is God doing all this? What is the purpose of it all? We're about to find out in verse 10. He says, so that. Now, always pay attention when you see a so that. Something big is about to be laid on you. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, you don't maybe understand what that means it's going to rock your world in just a moment, but here's the point in your notes. Number six, God's purpose fulfilled in history is his glory achieved in eternity. You get that? His, his purpose fulfilled in history on the earth results in his glory achieved in eternity, in heaven. All right? I've said it before. I'll say it again. Get used to this. The primary purpose of God above all. Number one with a bullet, numero uno, nothing else is even close. His priority is his glory. The glory of God. Worship, John Piper said, missions is not the primary directive of the church, worship is. Whoa, whoa, why? He says missions exist because worship does not. People are, we we are commissioned to make disciples of people, to what end? To bring glory to God. Come on. And so the truth of that 
emanates from this doxological purpose that God is preoccupied with his glory. And so he's saying that all of this, this is all for this purpose, that the wisdom of God is made known to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who's that? Those are terms, we've seen them before in Ephesians, we're gonna see them in chapter six. Those are terms ascribed to angels. Huh? Huh? In Ephesians 6, he's going to talk about fallen angels. He's going to say, uh, you know, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Who's it against? It's against powers, principalities, uh, rulers of darkness, of spiritual wickedness in high places. And these terms, powers, rulers, authorities, these are angelic terms. Angels have a rank and file. Our military has rank and file. We got generals and colonels and lieutenants and sergeants and all this stuff. Angels had them first. We, we get them from angels. They just call them something else up there. But there are categories within the angelic realm. And so these terms are referring to angels. What does that mean? That means that God's eternal purpose, why did he make the church? Why does he want Paul to preach this mystery? Why did he call him out? Why did he give the plan here? According to this verse, It was so that the angels might see the wisdom of God by looking at the church. And then they will worship as angels worship, as only angels can worship. And God will get what God desires above all, which is glory. You see, the reason for the church is not to save people. We better better be about the task. We've been given a commission, it's important. But what's the point is to bring glory to God, okay? The ultimate purpose of the church is to bring glory to God. Redemption, certainly a benefit for you and I. Certainly a mandate upon us, and it's the greatest expression of worship that we could ever possibly do and be engaged in. But it is so that angels will see this incredible miracle of the church and they will glorify him because God is worthy of that glory, the manifold wisdom of God. And you know what? Even the evil fallen angels factor into this. We call those demons, by the way. Can they worship God? They don't worship God, but they're gonna get awfully frustrated when they look at you because there's nothing they can do about you. And it's going to cause them to to moan and whine, and and they're going to realize something. They're going to look at the wisdom manifested uh, in the church, the wisdom of God, and they're going to see how stupid they were to ever disobey God and turn their back on him. It's going to cause them such frustration and consternation, and that way God is glorified in reverse. (laughs) You see, the angels look at creation. They see the power of God. They look at Mount Sinai, they get a glimpse of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. They see Jesus on the cross at Calvary. They see the love of God, they see the mercy of God. They look at you. They see the manifold wisdom of God and their brains explode. Oh my gosh, how did he do this? How did he come up with this? This has never existed before. That he could take something so corrupt that our, our Lord Satan saw to it. He tempted him in the garden. He, he cursed mankind by man's own actions and, and they're unregenerate and now God has taken them and he's redeemed them. He's transformed them to be like him, to have the same holiness that he has. And not only that, they're one with him. 
They're one with him. They're one with the son. They're one with the spirit. They're united with the father. They're united with each other. We've seen them fighting, Jews, Gentiles. They're at each other's throat. Now look at them. They're in harmony because of the spirit of God that indwells them. It's in them. It's not even like around them. It's inside there. How did he do this? It's all to bring glory to God. That's why you're here. Think about that for a minute. Let that impact your life. And look at how Paul closes out this section. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And then in verse 13, he says to the Ephesians, so I ask you not to lose heart. Don't lose heart. Do not lose heart. Whatever you're going through, the junk, the trouble, the hassle, the the trials, the tribulation that you're enduring right now, I don't know what it is God does. And he's saying, don't lose heart. Keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on the, the main thing. Your life is to be about me. Whatever you're going through, I'll see you through it. There's an eternity that awaits. It's gonna be better than anything you've experienced down here. Don't worry. Don't lose heart. Paul says, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And this is number seven. Our present struggles are reminders of our victory. Because we've already won. Everybody say, we win. win. Come on, like you believe it. We win. Amen. Here's your takeaway. God sees you no matter how insignificant you think you are, no matter what your friends, your enemies, your family, your coworkers all say about you. God sees you. You are part of something bigger than yourself. You're part of something bigger than anything anybody in human history has ever been involved in. And the purpose for which you are involved in that is the greatest purpose mankind has ever known. There is nothing greater you serve a purpose and your very existence and embrace of your identity causes the righteous angels to worship God and it causes even the fallen angels to pace and curse and spit and moan either way God gets the glory through you let's pray heavenly father help us carry this knowledge with us throughout the day God we are victors we are champions not of our own doing, not on our own merits, but because of you. And I just pray that we will walk with this knowledge, have the main thing remain the main thing, which is the glory of God in every aspect of our life. We're storing up treasures in heaven and we're, we are resulting in that which matters most to our master, our Lord. And we serve with joy and with purpose. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.